Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Boss Up Podcast, episode 388. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Boss Up. And today we have a really fantastic conversation with a very smart and savvy DEI practitioner, Lily Zhang. Lily joins me on the podcast today to frankly deliver some real talk about what we have all been getting wrong when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and why it's imperative that we start to get this right. Lily Zhang is a no-nonsense diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, strategist, and consultant who specializes in creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive workspaces through hands-on systemic change. A dedicated change maker and advocate named a Forbes DNI Trailblazer, 2021 DEI influencer, and LinkedIn top voice on racial equity, Lily's work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and NPR. Today, I have a copy of Lily's new book, DEI Deconstructed, in my hands that I'm so excited to dive in on. Lily, welcome to the Boss Up Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to dive into some pretty tough topics that you cover in your new book, DEI Deconstructed, your no-nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. Before we go there, tell me how you found yourself writing this book and how you got into DEI as an industry. Yeah, well, two very good questions to get started. So you know what they say about authors. Uh, Most authors write the book that they wish they could have read, and I'm certainly no exception. I was really thinking, you know, in the preparation to write this book about the resource I needed when I was first entering the DEI industry. At the time, I had just graduated college. I was going into DEI. I was really curious about this work. And I, to be frank, had no idea what the hell I was doing. I had resources, (laughs) no guidance, no nothing. And I just threw myself into the work thinking, you know, maybe I'll build the plane while I, you know, fly it. That was hard. It was really hard. Not just hard for me, but hard for the folks that I worked with because it was, you know, painfully apparent to me that I was never at the place I wanted to be as a practitioner starting out. Now, you know, it did take many years. I think I'm at a pretty good place now, but I really wish I had a resource early on that wasn't just focused on why I should care about DEI or why solving issues of inequity mattered. Like I knew all of that. Like like I I had my heart in the right place. And I was grounded in theory and methodology. And I still had no idea what I was doing. So I wrote the book to be the how. I wanted to write really a guidebook, a resource, something that anyone could pick up 
read and, you know, maybe not be the best practitioner in the world instantly, but have all of the starting tools that they needed to start making a real impact. Yeah. I I wonder almost if this is your individual journey and the journey of the whole industry, right? Because when I think of DEI or what used to be called multiculturalism Mm -hmm. a decade or two prior or whatever the hell acronym we're using these days to put a label on this kind of work around equity and justice, it feels like we're in a nascent field in many ways where nobody knew what the hell they were doing for a long time. And we're kind of getting to this point where bringing in more measurements, more analytics, more of a data-driven approach feels like the natural evolution of where the space is. So do you sort of see yourself and your journey with this work part and parcel with the broader sort of evolution that DEI is is navigating right now? I would say so. That's certainly poetic. And and I like <laughs> the whole like hero's journey part of it. Oh, I'm, sure. I'm not sure if I'm the best poster child for DEI, but I'll certainly say that my own experience has led me to understand the industry a lot better and to give it some tough love, I think, because like you say, the industry feels nascent and the industry has been around for 60 years. So there's this tension here between the fact that, yes, for almost everyone in it right now, the industry does feel nascent, it feels young, and we're not a young industry. We've been around for 60 years. We've had a lot of time to get it right, and we haven't. And so for practitioners who are just starting out in DEI or even practitioners who have been doing this work for a while who are struggling to find their impact and to understand what they're doing, this book is meant to be two parts wake-up call and and two parts, you know, this is what we do about it. This is the resource. This is how we solve these real problems. Because as I write in the book, unless we get our act together, like we don't have all the time in the world. DEI will not have goodwill or or societal trust for too much longer. We've been doing this work for a while and we're already seeing so much backlash and pushback from, frankly, DEI efforts that don't work. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stick around to see what happens when people look at a DEI practitioner and say, oh, you have DEI in your title? That must mean you're full of BS. I don't want to see that happen. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny because your no-nonsense approach, as you call it, can sound an awful lot like pessimism at times. I think there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic about the backlashes that we see. And I wonder, in the overall sort of history of social justice and movement-building work, is that backsliding not predictable? Right. Because I feel like it's always two steps forward, one step back, hopefully not two steps forward, two steps back. But, you know, what, if anything, gives you hope in this process? You have to I, I'm going to assume you have some hope if you went through all the trouble of writing. I this have book. so much hope. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So look, <laughs> it's, it's actually funny you mentioned that one of the early drafts of the book spent a lot of time describing pessimist versus optimist approaches to DEI that didn't actually make it into the final version. So you don't see that much of that language. But I'll draw on some of the original text. So, you know, some of our listeners will get the the behind the scenes. Essentially, 
I'm actually not a pessimist. I don't consider myself a pessimist. There's a lot of pessimist writing about DEI, uh, and, and a lot of it's incredible. One of my favorites is Diversity Inc., which I mentioned a few times in the book. It's a very pessimistic take on DEI. And the conclusion is essentially this industry is super effed, right? Like, we're in trouble, go down with the ship, like, bail out, like, nope, <laughs> we're, we're not going to stick around. The critiques that pessimist approaches to DEI make are pretty well-founded. And those critiques are often similar. There's no quality control. There are very few ways for practitioners to understand the impacts of what they're doing. There's no impact measurements. There's very little standardization. There's a lot of corporate co-optation of DEI efforts. Totally. A lot of performative allyship, diversity, whatever out there. And none of that is false. That's all correct. And, and the, the and here is crucial, knowing all of these things and knowing how past efforts have failed gives us an understanding into how we can do better in the present. The whole reason why I'm in this industry at all, and not just trying to, I don't know, go on the speaker circuit to talk trash about DEI, which I could do, is because I genuinely believe that this field has a future. That future just requires that we all up our game by like two, three, four, five levels. There's so much literature, actually, and so much precedent and research and, and case studies on things that work. The book actually spends a lot of time focusing on things that work. In fact, I believe chapter nine is quite literally all things that work. It's a laundry list almost of just interventions and practices and things that are effective. What I want people to take away is that the sort of quote-unquote pessimistic approach to look at the history of DEI and to ground ourselves in failure is actually really necessary. Because, you know, we're practitioners, we're going to make mistakes, but what we don't have the luxury to do is to make the same mistakes that those before us have made. We just don't have the time and the luxury to be messing up in those same ways. And so we learn from the past. We focus on all the terrible things that happened in the past so that we can make sure the future is better. That's good. Yeah. I felt, you know, in a lot of ways, the very opening part of your book, the very beginning introduction, really felt like a call out <laughs> to myself because I am one of those speakers who goes in and especially as a Women's History Month speaker coming every March, I know that I'm just being used to check a box. Right. And I collect my check and it funds the work that we do here at Boss Up that, you know, reaches individuals in a powerful way and makes a big impact in a lot of ways. But there are clients that I know are asking for something that they don't really need and they're using my voice or, you know, my workshop or whatever it might be to just perform some sort of obligation they feel like they have to do to be not critiqued in Women's History Month. And I I don't feel great about that work, I don't right? Think and there is does. there is a industrial complex to it because this is a capitalist society, and I'm running a business here. So how do you square that? Like, how do you, as a speaker yourself, challenge yourself to go beyond? And is there a time when you just take the check and do the work and hope it leads to somebody in that audience having an impact? Like, 
How do we wrap our heads around that? And why is being used as a check mark in that checkbox not a good thing if it if it's reaching individuals at the end of the day? Okay, okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot there. Pick, pick yeah. one of those three questions to start with, because otherwise my my answer is gonna be like 20 minutes long. <laughs> well, let's let's say how do we outline the problem at hand? We'll describe the the DEI industrial complex for our listeners who might not fully understand what the hell we're talking about here. Sure. So the DEI industrial complex, as I write in the book and as many other writers have talked about before me, is the informal relationship between corporations who are looking for approval from their stakeholders, who are you know, oftentimes looking to check a box and show that they've fulfilled their DEI-related obligations, and DEI practitioners, speakers, consultants, facilitators, and whatnot who provide the services that corporations are looking for. Now, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with corporations seeking services and practitioners providing them. That's not the problem. The problem is when nobody involved in this equation understands the impact of what they're doing. No one knows if what they're doing is actually helping or working. And most worryingly, nobody cares right? Nobody actually cares about whether these things are effective. And so it's one thing for corporations to say, hey, we have a problem here. Can you fix it? We'll pay you 20 grand. The practitioner says, I'll take your 20 grand and fixes the problem. That's fine. That's how you use contractors. But it's another problem if corporations say, hey, I think we have a problem over here. But can you go over there and talk about this completely unrelated thing to distract people and we'll pay you 20 grand? And practitioners say, yeah, sure, sure, I'll take the money. Then that starts to become more sinister. That starts to become more problematic, which is why we call this relationship the DEI industrial complex. Now, it's complicated by the fact that very few practitioners I know would go in and like gleefully rub their hands and say like, excellent, I, I, I can't wait for a chance to distract people from the real problems. And be complicit in perpetuating right, that right. problem. Right. No one yeah. willfully goes into this work trying to do that. But the gray area is really big. And oftentimes we can have a hunch that we're being used in this way, or we, we might not have full information or full transparency, and it might come out later that we were used in this way. What we do in that gray space, in that gray area, defines us as practitioners. And if we want to be making the impact that we care about, this book is in many ways a call to action for us to hold ourselves more accountable than I think we have in the past. And frankly, sometimes I think the hardest decision we make as practitioners is who to say no to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I suspect you want me to just do a song and dance for your people and you're not going to actually address these issues. No, thanks. Right. And that's a hard choice to make, especially when we've got mouths to feed, <laughs> Yep, you know, in, in the in the economy we're in and in the space that we're in. It's definitely a tricky song and dance, tap dance, whatever you want to call it. That gray area can be challenging. So you talk a little bit about how to up our game in terms of measuring impact. And I'm interested, I'm reminded almost of a concept called vanity metrics, the metrics such as how much did people enjoy this diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop? And to your point, you basically say, who gives a shit, right? Like, that's not an actual measurable sign of progress here. What are some better ways for anyone listening to this who's like invested in improving DEI at their organization? What are some of the KPIs that we can call our organizations to deliver on or to measure to get us started in the right direction? 
So I'm going to take a, a slightly different approach to answering this question because I get it a lot. People say like, Lily, what are the good DEI KPIs? That was a lot of acronyms. <laughs> what should we measure yeah. when it comes to DEI work? Can you give us a list? I would say that that's actually the wrong way to look at it mm. because there are as many DEI KPIs as there are people metrics that exist in the world. You can measure, gosh, people's usage of vacation days, people's feelings of belonging at work, the representation of your C-suite, the demographics of everyone you've hired in the last year, the, I don't know, family makeup of your teams, the productivity of like, I don't want to go down that list, right? Because it's quite literally infinite. Sure. A better question to ask, especially when we talk about deploying DEI interventions or services as, as something to be effective, is to ask ourselves, what problem are we trying to solve with a DEI-related intervention? And to let that problem pick the KPIs for us. And so one example Let's say you're an executive or you're an HR leader and you want to bring in a DEI speaker for, I don't know, like Women's History Month, right? Since we were just talking about that. Sure. The typical way to do it, which I think is the wrong way to do it, is to say, we need a speaker for Women's History Month. Who's a good speaker and try to solve that problem? They've already skipped 10 steps. The first steps should be what problems, what are we trying to achieve through Women's History Month? What can we use this time of the year to do that we can't do during any other month? Or what is more effective to do now? Let's say the answer to that in your company happens to be, um, there's a lot of sexist microaggressions happening in our company, and we want to use Women's History Month to help raise the awareness of these behaviors and get people acting as allies and in, in engaging in bystander intervention more frequently when they see these behaviors happening. Great, now you've identified a problem. Now, you can already see what KPIs emerge from this problem statement, like number of microaggressions reported, for example, right? That's, that's just one very basic KPI. Then, now you have your metric, you can then start to select your speaker or your workshop facilitator or whatever as someone to improve on that metric. And if you asked me, if you're trying to improve the number of microaggressions people report, a speaker is actually probably not the right intervention there. I would probably train managers to get them all to encourage their teams to report more microaggressions. I would think about leading maybe a series of conversations across all the departments in the company to build people's comfort. I would maybe add a uh, pretty rigorous bystander intervention training into the uh, standard trainings that that company's offering for let's say people who want to become managers. Like I'm, I'm thinking about so many things now because the KPI has been picked already. We've right. picked the KPI. Now we're trying to decide the intervention that will move the needle there. A lot of people in the DEI space do it backwards. They just assume that because they're a speaker, the speaker is the solution to the problem. They don't even know the problem. And so this is where we have this mismatch between people going like, well, we must have a speaker for this event. So what can I do as a speaker? Sometimes the answer is, they don't need a speaker. They need something else. Right. Absolutely. And I 
love whenever an organization comes to us and is very clear about what their goals are, right? Because how can any organization, whether you are just a speaker or do consulting work and strategy work beyond that, how can anyone design a solution when the client isn't ready to talk about the problem? And I I think it's very common for there to be reticence at every level of an organization, but especially executive levels, to name the problem. On your website, you make it very clear, listen, if there's a white supremacy problem, I'm going to call it a white supremacy problem at your organization. Like, don't hire me if you're not ready to talk honestly about what the problems are. How have you found that challenge? Like, do you think, and I, I would venture to guess that many of our listeners feel like they can't even say out loud what they suspect the real systemic problems to be because the people by default who are in senior leadership have personally benefited from that system. And so it's hard to find that those senior leaders are ready and willing to say, hey, here's a systemic problem that I've benefited from. Let's talk about how bad it is and how we can solve for it, right? Do you see that there's a lot of resistance there? And how do you navigate that? Of course there's resistance. So look, I know what my website says. I don't (laughs) actually go into corporations and just like in the first week go like, you're a white supremacist, you're a white supremacist. Like I I, I don't do that. That's that's not effective. We were talking about data-driven approaches earlier. That's exactly what I do with the companies that I work with. I don't say there's a white supremacy problem until I've identified good data that there's a white supremacy problem. I don't say that there's a boys club until I've identified data that there's a boys club. When I collect this data, I primarily do survey work. That's my bread and butter. So I'll do a range of surveys. I'll collect qual and quant data. I'll do interviews, one-on-ones, focus groups, follow-ups. I'll review exit interview data. I'll audit their policies and processes. And after all of that, then I have the qual and quant data to say these are the challenges, the, you know, the places in your org where men are having better outcomes than women, where white folks are having better outcomes than black folks and East Asian folks, South Asian folks, Latinx folks, indigenous folks, so on and so forth. And this is why it's happening. These are some of the levers that you can push to make things better. And then from there, I'll say one way we could think of these challenges is using these criteria of white supremacy culture, you meet many of them. We can talk about this as a white supremacy culture problem. And so I'm certainly not leading with like making people feel bad. I'm using data to justify an assessment of the situation. And that's a very different approach. Sure, there's reticence. When I when I use those words, right, sometimes people are like, oh, like, I don't think you need to be that harsh on us. And I can say like, okay, fine, we can use different words, but the problem is still the exact same thing. These are the challenges. This is the hard data we have. This is the qual and quant data we have. You can't really argue with it. Now we just have to problem solve together. I mean, honestly, that sounds delightful in that you're very clear from your measurements what the challenge is, where we're starting from. And then you can be honest and make progress and be proud of that progress, right? If yeah. people are willing to do the work, I think that first barrier of being willing to level with yourself and others as an organization as to where you're at is a prerequisite to feeling all the warm and fuzzy feelings we get when we make real lasting systemic progress. I think so many organizations 
put the onus on individuals as like, oh, this is an individual problem or you are, you know, being a sexist or a misogynist or a racist. You need to work on that instead of thinking about it from a systems basis. So how did people get started in reframing the problem from one of, oh, we have a really obnoxious, toxic manager to we have a toxic system of who gets into management here. I I feel like ideally there's great people operations teams out there who are examining this, but often a lot of my listeners say, hey, I go to HR and I hear nothing. You know, I'm not getting the support from the people who are supposed to be, you know, have this under their purview, or I'm a busy client services manager who's just running this women's ERG in my spare time. (laughs) I'm out of my depth. How do you begin to look at this as a system problem instead of an individual one when you feel like the resources might not be there? It really depends on how much time and energy you're willing to invest to problem solve. (laughs) If you are strapped for time, you're doing this in your volunteer time, It's not a bad thing to say you're out of your element, right? You can say, look, I need help. I need to bring in a consultant. I need to bring in an expert. I need to talk to some other folks. That's totally good. That's fine. That's great, in fact. Now, if you're someone that wants to look into this and wants to sort of move to a systemic approach, the easiest way to start is to ask why. Why is this happening? So I can observe this thing. So, for example, I can observe that the last uh, four women who joined this team haven't been promoted in two or three years, but the last five men have all been promoted within one or two years. That's the observation. Now, just ask, why? Why did this happen? Sometimes you can't answer it immediately. Sometimes, you know, you need to talk to the men who are promoted. You need to talk to the women who were promoted. You need to talk to the manager involved and understand, build a theory, a hypothesis for why did this happen? Why am I seeing what I'm seeing? And you know what? Sometimes the answer to the question of why is actually an individual challenge. Sometimes it's my manager is a raging bigot and (laughs) hates women. And that's obvious. There's no systemic challenge. It's just my manager is an Sometimes that's the answer to why. And if that is the answer and you have good data, because what I'm talking about right now is actually gathering data, and you have good data to prove it, great, case closed. Then you can basically say, my manager is now and we need to get rid of him. Hmm. And sometimes the answer to why is more complicated. Maybe, oh, my manager seems to be a really good person and isn't even aware that this is happening, but we don't actually have any formal promotion processes. It's just a matter of who shows up on this guy's radar. And he goes out drinking with the guys every other week And so he just naturally gets closer to these guys. And when he thinks about people to promote, he doesn't think of the women. Well, that why is now something that points to systems, the lack of a promotion process, the lack of networking opportunities for women, the lack of close opportunities to communicate and work together between that manager and the women under him. So understand that asking why is the start to any problem-solving process and that you can't answer the why by yourself if you do nothing. You need to gather your own data or work with people who have gathered that data or work with experts. If you can do that, you're already doing exactly the work that I do as a DEI consultant, right? It's just a matter of scale. And anyone can do that on their own team. 
Do you feel like that would be a call to action for those listening who care about this is to before we jump to solutions to first get the context, do the homework, yeah. do some sleuthing, do some detective Frame the work. problem. Frame yeah. the problem, right? So the problem is not just the observation. The observation, right? Like like I mentioned, X number of women didn't get promoted. X number of men did get promoted. That's an observation. That is something that looks like it's a problem. But the real framing of the problem is now I understand the why. This manager is a good person, but he doesn't have the structure or the frameworks or the resources or whatever to make good decisions. These things don't exist. That's the problem. Like this is the part that's missing. And then once you have that, then come up with all the solutions you want. Go to HR and be like, hey, not only am I pissed that X number of women haven't been promoted, I know why. And I don't think this why is something that's acceptable. Let's fix it. I like that. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm thinking of organizations that we work with and individuals who share where their orgs are at. And I feel like there's a really wide spectrum. You know, some organizations feel like at the very least they care about the fact that women aren't getting promoted at equal rates than men, right? That's a starting block. Some orgs don't care, right? There are some people who I feel like are in the dark ages who come to us and say, I've gone to my manager, I've framed the problem, they don't seem to care. And so getting them to at least acknowledge the problem and maybe see the framing as to why this is happening, those are good incremental steps. The question is, what is the next step around accountability? I feel like your book really takes us to the next level. You're not trying to make the case as to why you should care. We're, we're assuming people do care about equity and justice in this book, right? So the next step I feel like is about follow through, about accountability. Let's say you get HR on board with the why, your, your hypothesis behind the problem. How do you help those leaders who do want to do the right thing to actually follow through on those solutions, which feels like a big persuasion campaign. Like, how do we get to that next level? Yeah. So there's a few different tracks here in what I'm hearing you ask. The first is, what do you do if your manager doesn't care? The second, if you are someone who cares, how do you work with a bunch of people who maybe don't care? Sure. And then maybe the third, is how do you work with HR or something similar to hold others accountable? These, these questions are, are all very similar. The chapter in my book that I think gets to this is actually the chapter on power. It's kind of a dirty word within corporations, right? We don't want to talk about power dynamics. They're there. Everyone knows they're there. We just don't like to name them. <laughs> there are always power dynamics within companies. There are informal power dynamics. There's formal power dynamics. People have formal authority over others, but there's also lots of informal power in terms of who's considered respected, who is considered an expert, who's listened to, so on and so forth. So if you are looking to influence, if you're looking to change somebody's behavior or to change someone's actions, this is a question of how to use and leverage power to change behavior. If you're someone without much formal power, then there are so many strategies you can use. You can work together with maybe someone who does have formal power, for example, going to someone's boss or working with HR, if HR does have power in that company. You can start looking at informal power. You can talk to more folks in your position. You can start a movement. 
there's another chapter entirely about starting movements. I believe that's chapter seven, making change. Collective change, power, change maker, yeah. everyone, right. You can find collective power. You can start movements that hold leaders accountable, that demand certain changes. You can unionize, right? Like that's quite literally another way to create collective power within companies. So it's about knowing what you can do, what you can contribute and finding that collective. I write in that movement building chapter that a lot of people buy into this myth that we can make change if we're just the activist hero. We can be one person to rise up against the man and tear down the system. And I guarantee you, every example of systems change in history has involved a collective, every single example. Sure, maybe there's one person that the narrative likes to focus on, but like someone had to stand around with clipboards, someone had to organize people to the events, someone had to buy pizza. These movements require people but they don't just require a massive body standing around not knowing what's going on. They require people who understand their role, who understand what's needed of them in a movement and who can contribute. So if you're someone that wants to change behavior, to leverage your collective power to do something in your company, well, the first step is to find other people like you. The second is to collectively come to your understanding of the problem. This is something that we started this conversation with. You need to understand what problem you're solving before you throw a solution at it. And so caucus with some folks, do some, you know, organizing around like, what are people's different challenges? What experiences do folks have? Like, can we come to some sort of alignment on what exactly the problems are? Maybe there are 10, but if there are top three, a core three, problems that we're trying to solve. Let's align our movement on that. So our movement has aligned on the fact that we don't have any systems to promote equity and fairness in our company. And in the absence of these formal systems, managerial bias is getting unchecked. So it's possible for any manager to sort of make any decision and not be held accountable for it. That's bad. We demand more systems of accountability and more structure. So You've articulated the problem and now you've ar articulated one clear ask around it. Now you can organize your movement. You can bring more people on board. You can start advocating for people because you've accurately defined your problem. And you'll know that you accurately define your problem because lots of people will be like, oh, yep, that's exactly what I'm facing. And then you can coalesce around a solution. You can say, this is what we need. We're going to push for this policy, 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 policy. We got to have it happen. This is the one thing we're pushing for. And eventually you'll succeed, right? You'll, you'll bring in other stakeholders. You'll bring in decision makers. Um, chapter seven has like a whole bit on like exactly what that process might look like. But the core thing is you assess what problem you're trying to solve. You align around it and then you organize around it. I'm... Absolutely delighted because I feel like this is a full circle moment for me personally, Lily, in that my career started off in campaigns, elections, policy work, organizing, movement building. And here we are talking about how this applies to everyone's organization, even in our very imperfect capitalist economy. I love how you've broken down in a very practical way the systemic process that power and, and leveraging collective power can look like when it comes to truly advancing DEI with measurable outcomes. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I have to let you go. But for those who are listening and who are thinking, sign me up, Lily, I want to know more. I want this no-nonsense guide. Whether they're in HR or not, it sounds like this is 
the kind of work that you do is something that anyone who cares about these issues could benefit from. Is that right? Where, where can folks hear more about all that you have to offer and get their hands on this fabulous book? The best way to learn more about the book is through the weekly book clubs that I've been hosting on my LinkedIn. You can find recordings of every chapter on my LinkedIn profile. They've been recorded. They were recorded on LinkedIn live every week. And they're a great place just to find me talking about each chapter of the book with an audience. They're a great place to get your questions answered. And if you're looking to buy the book for yourself, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, my publisher, Barrett Kohler, or quite literally anywhere else books are sold. Thank you so much, Lily. I feel like I'm personally called to act and to up my game in the DEI space. And I hope everyone listening can make that part of our sort of focus in this new year is to do this work better. And you really lay out how we can do that. So thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I really hope that folks tuning in get a lot out of this book and can put some of these ideas into action in their own work. For all links and resources that Lily and I discussed today, head to bossedup.org slash episode 388. That's bossedup.org slash episode 388. You can find links there to Lily's LinkedIn profile, all of those chapter-by-chapter book club conversations were recorded via LinkedIn Live on their profile there. And you can find links to get your hands on DEI Deconstructed for yourself. I would love to hear from you. What did you think about today's conversation? How can you ask why when your organization starts to identify the challenges or roadblocks or just barriers when it comes to equity and inclusion in your neck of the woods? I'd love to hear how that goes for you and how you think you can begin to apply some of what we talked about today in real life. Not an easy conversation and certainly not an easy topic to wade into, um, but let's keep the conversation going via the Bossed Up Courage community or our LinkedIn group. I'd love to hear your thoughts there, and you'll find links to those in today's show notes as well. In the meantime, share this episode with the people in your world, maybe the HR departments in your world, that you think are ready and willing to do this work right. I think that is the call to action I'm certainly leaving this conversation with, and I'm excited for all the organizations that we get to partner here with at Bossed Up who really want to dive into the data, the metrics, and make real impact and equity possible. Until next time, let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb. <laughs>